Thank you for joining me for another week of the Word of God with Father Reed Henserling at All Saints Episcopal Church in Lakeland, Florida. We are looking this week at the week of First Epiphany. Now, Epiphany is the season after Christmas, and Christmas is the season after Advent. Advent is the first season of the liturgical calendar, or in the liturgical calendar. We start a calendar year with January. We start, start a liturgical year with Advent. And Advent is four weeks long. After Advent is Christmas, Christmas Day. Sometimes the first Sunday and the second Sunday after Christmas Day. Now Epiphany is on January the 6th. And we are going to celebrate the first Sunday after the Epiphany. And the first Sunday after the Epiphany is a Sunday where we celebrate the baptism of Jesus Christ. He's baptized by John, his cousin of six months, uh, who is older than him uh, by six months. His cousin born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, Luke chapter 1. And John is preparing the people for the coming of Christ and then he is baptized, he, Jesus, is baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. So we are celebrating the week of First Epiphany. Now we have three major scriptures that we're going to look at. We're going to look at Isaiah 40, 41, 42, and 43 for the Old Testament. For the New Testament, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians, a great, great book uh, written by Paul. And thirdly, the Gospel we are beginning our study of the Gospel of Mark. All right, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to spend a considerable amount of time in Mark, and we'll spend a little bit of time in Ephesians, and we have been in Isaiah for some time, and that will continue. These are great, great scriptures this uh, coming week, and I hope you enjoy them very much. Again, on a daily basis, you'll want to go to the scriptures and read them. When should I read them, Father Reed? Read them when you feel that it's quiet, you have some time, um, you're not as harried, you don't, you don't have a lot on your mind, if possible, and let the Scripture speak to you in, a, in the quiet part of your day. I like to go to the same place every day, so I kind of build up um, a familiar setting. You may want to light a candle. You may want to have uh, some light in the room. You may want to have a special... Uh, chair that you're sitting in or a, a, a certain mood that you're trying to create. So you want to read Isaiah, for example, on Sunday. It's Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Hebrews 1, 1 through 12. Now normally Sunday has different scriptures than Monday through Saturday. And then John 1 through, se 1, 1 through 7, 19 to 20, and 29 to 34. And then you read those, pray about them, think about them. If you have a study Bible, which means that on the bottom of your Bible verses, you'll have notes that will tell you about that particular scripture. That's a helpful thing to have. If you just have straight text, that is, you just have the Bible and that's it, you may not understand everything that's written. You're not trying to. You're trying to build up a routine of reading the Bible and getting used to that terminology. Now, if you are very proficient in the scriptures, you may want to do some additional study uh, other than just getting those scriptures in your mind and listening to the Holy Spirit speak to you. Finally, 
you do want to try to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you as you are reading. Okay? In Isaiah 40, we have a real demarcation in the book of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters versus chapter 40 through 66. It takes a very different tone. And chapter 40 is a fabulous chapter in the, um, in the Old Testament. Isaiah, about 700 B.C., starts off by saying, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now that should sound familiar to you if you're familiar with the Gospels, particularly in Mark, where as we will see on Monday, Mark 1, 1 to 13 is about the coming of the Messiah and the baptism of Jesus. And this scripture refers to that particular prophecy in Isaiah that's replicated and shown to be true in Mark chapter 1. Every valley shall be lifted up, verse 4. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So what's fascinating about scripture is that you'll, you'll have a situation where the prophet is speaking the word of the Lord. Now, the prophet is compared to a false prophet. A pro false prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but it doesn't come true. A true prophet is one that speaks the word of the Lord, and it does come true because God has spoken it. And in Isaiah, who is an extraordinary prophet, he has the word of the Lord given to the people. And then what happens later in the New Testament is he validates that word. It actually comes to pass. So as you read this, what shall I cry, verse 6, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. That's certainly true. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All right. So God is speaking something prophetically during that time, about 700 B.C., but he's also speaking about something that has eternal consequences. So what you're trying to do is balance three things. What is the writer saying to the people at that time? Does this text have eternal consequences? That is, or eternal reality. Does it, is it good just for that time only, or does it extend beyond its time? And thirdly, what does this scripture mean for me? What does this scripture mean for me? So as you look through the readings for the week of First Epiphany, and you look at Isaiah 45, 40, chapter 40, again, as I said, a very beautiful chapter. On Monday, we see Isaiah 40, 12 to 23. I love verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman makes it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. This is somebody that makes idols. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Verse 21, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Beautiful language. Who stretches out the heaven like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So he's comparing and contrasting idol worshipers. Now, what you'll find as you read through Isaiah the next several weeks, 
40 and on, is that the idea of God being the true God versus those persons making idols is a very key component to these readings where God contrasts the reality of God and the fact that God can actually do something. He actually influences history versus God's made of wood or silver or gold that can't do anything. So he must be the true God. Isaiah 41. Let's look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called for, from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay, so he's obviously speaking to the people of Israel and comforting them. At the same time, that has an eternal reality to it where God is present. He's ever present. And then thirdly, as you think about that scripture, is God saying that to you personally? Now, did he write this to you personally? No. Did he write it to me personally? No. He wrote it contextually to those people at that time. But because the word of God is eternal and has the properties by which one can receive God's word to them personally, it has tremendous power and value. So as, again, you're reading through Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 41, and then he will, we will look at Isaiah 42, you want to be sensitive to that reality and you want to hear what God has to say to you. Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold. Now the serv this is what the, was called the servant song. And the servant ends up being Jesus. So this is another prophetic word. My chosen in whom my soul delights. The chosen one, Jesus I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. So remember, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. As we'll see in Mark chapter 1, 1 to 13, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him at his baptism. And then he talks about who the servant is. And he talks about the characteristics of the servant. I am the Lord, verse 6 of chapter 42. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. So this servant is going to be someone that can open the eyes of the blind. Well, you know very well that Jesus did those kinds of things. He performed those amazing miracles. I am the Lord, verse 8. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Back to the idol idea again, right? Isaiah wants us to make sure that God does not, does not support idol worship or idols are making carved images. And then finally, chapter 43, a beautiful, um, a beautiful series of verses, chapter 43, 1 to 13. But now, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Beautiful example of a particular word to them at a particular time. And then, but those words could be for you also, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, verse 2, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So those words can be personalized. You just want to be very careful in doing that. I don't like to do that first blush. 
I always like to find out what's the context. What is he saying to them? What is he saying to the people that he's writing to? Is this an eternal word or is this a temporal word? Is this a word that's only for that time? Or does this word have eternal value? That's another thing that's very important to discern. Well, let's turn over now to Ephesians, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's a very, very powerful series of chapters, six chapters in all. I'm not even going to pretend to give you anything but a great overview and encourage you very strongly to read this text. Now, what is the value of a letter? Remember, the letters are written after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So this is about 30 or 33 A.D. that Jesus was resurrected. 30 or 33. He's born about 4 B.C. Paul starts writing in the 50s. So this is about 20 years later, 20 plus years later, depending on the book. So Jesus has done his ministry. Information about him is circulated. Paul in Acts chapter 9 has met him on the road to Damascus. Paul has started his ministry. Now he's responding to the churches. He's responding through personal visits. He's responding by sending disciples. He's also responding by sending letters. They took this information and they read it to the people. Now we have this document. The value of a letter is it's 20 plus years after Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. And we've had time to think about it. We've had some history on our sides, and we've had some ministry on his, our side. Paul is now reflecting theologically on lots of issues in these letters. Again, Ephesians begins on Monday with chapter 1, and we end on Saturday with chapter 3. And I have taught two-year courses just on the book of Ephesians word by word. So we'll just give you a close uh, and a quick overview of this. He talks to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul is going to do in the first three or four chapters, he's going to talk about spiritual realities. He's going to bring up theological issues. He's going to share with them things that he wants them to know. He's going to bring comfort to them. So as you're reading through this, Paul again is writing specifically to the Ephesians, those people that are in Ephesus, and that letter is circulated, and it is, thanks be to God, we have that letter. And so again, you want to look at it contextually, then you want to go to it, and you want to look at it in terms of personal. For example, let me give you a couple of examples in the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what he's saying there in chapter 1, verse 3, is everything that you need in your life spiritually, it's already been done for you in Christ. That's what that means. And he's going to go through that, and he's going to tell you all the ways that you and I, or those of you that are Christians, are blessed by following Jesus Christ. And so this is extraordinary theological document that outlines the basics of the faith. We call that the doctrine of the faith, the dogma, our faith, the faith, different words that we use. Now in chapter 2, he says, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses 
and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this is verse 1, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he's doing in chapter 2, 1 through 3, is telling us the state that we were in before we met Christ, which gives us a context of what it looks like before Christ. Then he's going to tell us what it looks like when we know Christ. So a lot of what Paul does, he's looking at the past, the present, and the future. So when you think about your life in Christ, you're thinking about before you knew Christ, the life that you're living right now in Christ, and then what's the future look like? What's the future look like? So that might be a nice way to look at these scriptures as you're reading them uh, and thinking about them, okay? We go to, so again, chapter one, chapter two, very rich, very deep. Read it slowly, read it several times. I, was, I preached the other day on chapter 3, 1 through 12, about the mystery made known to me by revelation. Chapter 3, verse 3. I love uh, chapter 7 and 8. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, all by grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Well, people don't understand who God is except by grace and by the power of God and revelation to share and show them what is true. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Now, what are Gentiles? Gentiles are non-Jews. So basically, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the people that are Jewish people, and then there's the people that are not the Jewish people. That is the Gentile people. The unsearchable riches of Christ at the end of verse 8. So he was given grace to share the gospel of Christ. Now, that's what Ephesians is about. You want to know Christ better? You want to read this document. There's no replacement for that. This is an extraordinary document, as I've said repeatedly. And we close the week out with chapter 3, 14 to 21. And then he will pick up when we look at Second Epiphany next week. We will pick this up and look at the rest of Ephesians. Look at verse 20 before we go to Mark's gospel. Of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think. Well, that's a great promise, isn't it? According to the power at work within us, there's again that power working within us, just as the, that power was working in Paul. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we see the glory of God in the church of Christ throughout all generations. So again, this is not just for 2,000 years ago. It's literally up to now and in the future. So this message is good for all time, throughout all generations. Our gospel reading for quite a few weeks is going to be Mark chapter 1, or the Mark's gospel beginning in the first chapter. Mark is a disciple of Peter's. Mark is not a person that knew Jesus like Matthew did and John did. Luke is a Gentile. Mark is a disciple of Peter, and we think he got lots of information from Peter. He was doing ministry with St. Paul, so Mark is quite a famous person. Now, we think that Mark is probably the first gospel, and he is sharing with us 
a wonderful gospel message about Jesus' life, action, and words. And it is shorter than the other three, and it is more immediate and more quick, and it gives us a wonderful snapshot of Christ. One of the things you want to remember, remember about the Gospels is they are snapshots of Jesus looking at him in four different directions. And so you need to read each of them separately, and then you want to bring all that information together. So he begins not with a infancy narrative as he does in Luke, or in the beginning was the word is in John, but he begins right out with Isaiah the prophet. Remember, we read this earlier. And then he's baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he prophesies that Jesus is going to come. And in verse 9, 10, and 11, here he comes, and he's baptized, this is Jesus, baptized by John in the Jordan. He comes out of the water, the heavens are open, the Spirit comes on him. And a voice says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now in the New Testament, God speaks three times. At Jesus' baptism, at the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, and thirdly in John chapter 12 before he dies. So when God speaks, that's, that's good information. And basically he says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So that kicks off his ministry. But before he starts his ministry, he's tempted by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. And we find that in verses 12 and 13. Then he begins his ministry. Now, what you see as you're looking through his ministry, as we read this uh, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and into Thursday as we go into chapter 2, we're looking at different sections of Jesus' ministry. All right, so what do we see? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God in chapter 1, verse 15. He calls the first disciples in chapter 1, 16 to 20. Then he starts a healing ministry. He heals a man with an unclean spirit. And then in verse 29, he leaves the synagogue. He goes to the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John, and they brought to him, look at this, in verse 32, all who were sick or oppressed by demons, the whole city was gathered and he healed many. So he becomes this extraordinary person, or he doesn't become it. He shows he's an extraordinary person by casting out devils, by teaching, and by healing people. He's also preaching. Now there's a difference between preaching and teaching. In preaching, he is giving out information and showing people stuff. In preaching, he's proclaiming. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's calling on people to repent, or he's calling on people to hear his message, or he's calling on people to consider what he's saying. He cleanses the leper at the end, leper at the end of chapter 1. Another great miracle, and in this particular miracle, he um, heals a person that is unclean, and he uh, makes them clean, a really astounding miracle. In chapter 2, he heals a paralytic. The paralytic has people that are his friends that bring him before Jesus, and they have a confrontation about forgiving sins or healing. And Jesus shows himself to be divine because he has the power to forgive sins. They are astonished by that, and they can't believe that he has that power because that power is only given by God. But here's an early glimpse in Mark's gospel of his divinity. He calls Levi out. In chapter 13 to uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, he calls Levi, who's Matthew, 
and the disciples and the Pharisees um, are talking about fasting in verse 18. The people come to him and say, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the, um, of the uh, Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So John the Baptist's disciples fast, the Pharisees fast, but your people don't fast. What is the point? Jesus is in a constant argument and discussion with the Pharisees and the people, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, about what he's doing and why. So he is very good about stating an argument and dealing with them and teaching them truth. He is not afraid that they're going to do something like have him killed, which eventually, as you know, they do. His teaching continues at the end of chapter 2 about being Lord of the Sabbath, which is a tremendous teaching about his value. And then finally, the man with the withered hand that's healed in the synagogue. And is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? And he chooses to save life. So Jesus is dealing with the Jewish leaders and the religious leaders that are not open to his message and that confront him and challenge him all the time. So we have these great tete-a-tete with Jesus and the religious, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and the common person. So as you're reading through the Gospels, uh, particularly in Mark, as we go through the daily lectionary together in this first Sunday after the Epiphany, be thinking along those lines. I pray that you'll have a wonderful time of reading this week. Enjoy the scriptures, enjoy the reading, and listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling you. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.